invite you to open your Bibles this morning uh, as uh, Betty Faye uh, Collins is going to do our scripture reading from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Okay. Our scripture reading is from Galatians 5, Amen. Amen. Thank you, baby Faith. What is true freedom? As the passage opens up in verse 1, Paul talking about freedom. But what is true freedom? Uh, freedom is a concept that we talk about a lot uh, as Americans. It's something that you uh, hear often, that it was for freedom, that a revolutionary war was fought, and it was uh, for freedom and for the preservation of freedom, that uh, our military remains active, and, and uh, as we promote democracy throughout the world, uh, in essence, we are hoping to promote freedom, freedom of people, of individual uh, liberties, uh, and, and uh, the rights that God has given to us. Uh, now, the question becomes, in the biblical sense, what is freedom? Uh, is it just being able to vote? Uh, is freedom just being able to uh, uh, go across state lines as I choose? Is freedom uh, being able to wear whatever I want to wear? Uh, is freedom uh, being able to go and work where I want to work? Is freedom being able to live where I want to live? Is freedom uh, simply being able to come and worship uh, where I want to worship? Uh, what is 
freedom? Is it simply doing whatever we want to do? And I think Paul uh, gives us a different understanding of the biblical sense of freedom. Uh, where he says in verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So obviously what is the opposite of freedom is what? Slavery. And so he's comparing uh, these two ideas of freedom and slavery. And he's saying one of the things that the gospel accomplishes is freedom. So that before the gospel, there was slavery. After the gospel, there is freedom. Before faith, slavery. After faith, freedom. Now, what is it that we are free from, and what was it that we were enslaved to? I think part of this answer is answered in chapter 3, and verse 23. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but uh, just look over, if you want to look over a page. Uh, it's in verse uh, 23 of chapter 3, where Paul writes, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So according to verse 23, what is it that we are imprisoned to? Or what is it that we are held captive to? What, are, what is it that we are slaves to? According to chapter 3, verse 23. We were held captive under what? Under the law. Under the law. Now the opposite of being held captive under the law is freedom. So when we think about what the gospel accomplished in one sense, first of all, we have to think about what is the gospel. Now you could explain the gospel in a lot of different ways, but at its core, one of the ways that you could explain it is that it's simply the announcement, so it's an announcement of good news, that there is salvation from sin and death through faith in Christ and His work of His life, His death, and His resurrection. So that when we have faith in Christ, we are escaping the curse of the law, which is death and condemnation. And we're doing that through Christ. And so part of what happens in the gospel is that not only are we reconciled to God, not only is our sin paid for, but according to Paul here in verse 1, is that we have freedom. That it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So that's when we look back at chapter 3 and verse 23, that it says, Before faith we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now before faith we were held captive under the law, what does that imply after faith? If before faith we were held captive under the law, what happens after faith? The opposite of that, right? What's the opposite of being held captive under the law? It's freedom from the law. And Paul begins to unpack what he means when he says this. But notice the strong words. That this isn't something that is a, a, a secondary or, or kind of a remote issue here. That he's saying, well, this really isn't a big deal. If you want to think about it, if you want to deal with it, that's good. But if not, don't really worry about it. But notice the strong words he gives in verse 1. where he, After he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So he gives us this, this theological statement about the gospel. That we are free in Christ. And then he says a command. Stand firm therefore. And don't submit back to the yoke of slavery. So he's saying, look, listen, Christians. Part of the gospel is that we are now free. 
We are no longer slaves to the law. And so in light of that, stand firm. Be diligent. This military term of of hold your ground. Think about it. Be active and proactive in fighting against things that would take away your freedom. And not to be nonchalant or, or apathetic about it. But to think diligently what it means to be free in Christ. And then what it means to be the opposite of that, a slave under the law. Now in the next few verses, Paul unpacks the specific application of this for the Gentiles. Now our application is going to be different because circumcision is not an issue for uh, this congregation. It's not something that I've heard anyone arguing about. Uh, But we do have other issues that I think are are relevant to discuss. But let's notice what Paul says in verse 2. He says, now look, now this is where he begins applying it and unpacking uh, this statement of verse 1. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now what is he talking about there? As we have mentioned several times throughout the book of Galatians, the problem that Paul is specifically addressing here is that there were a group of Jewish Christians who were telling the non-Jewish Christians that they had to be circumcised to really be accepted by God. Now, where does the concept of circumcision come from? Where does it come from? Is it man's invention or God's idea? According to the Old Testament, it was God's idea. God gave specific commands to the offspring of Abraham to be circumcised. That the circumcision of the male children was a visible sign that they were God's covenant people. That the cutting of the flesh represented the cutting of the covenant and it represented the future cutting of the heart that God would do through the Spirit in the new covenant. So this isn't some random thing they're pulling out of the woods. I mean, these, these Jewish Christians are saying, well, look here. I mean, haven't you read the book of Genesis? God commands His people to be circumcised. So therefore, you need to be circumcised, Gentile believers. You didn't grow up as Jewish children, so you weren't circumcised in your homes. But now you follow Christ. You've you've turned to the one true living God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, who sent His Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so now one of the ways that we were identified before Christ is by circumcision. And so now God had commanded that, and so you need to be circumcised. Sounds like a good argument, right? You can see how some of these Gentiles... And these Christians in Galatia were being deceived. Because these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians, could easily point to the book of Genesis and say, Look right here. God said to be circumcised. That His people are to be circumcised. But what Paul understood was that circumcision for these false teachers wasn't just a a sign. It wasn't just a rite or a ceremony. But it was a theological statement that said what you need in addition to faith in Christ is a work of the law and that work of the law is specifically circumcision. Now, what does Paul say the result of that is doing? He said if you accept circumcision, then what does he say? He says, number one, Christ will be no of no advantage to you. 
Number two, he says in verse three, that this obligates you to keep the whole law. Number uh, uh, three, in verse four, it says you are severed from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. So why would Paul say that if these Gentiles did something that God commanded them to do in the Old Testament, that that would mean that Christ was of no advantage to them and that they were severed from Christ? Why would Paul say that? Because again, they weren't telling them to go kill their kids. They weren't telling them anything that wasn't in the Bible. They were telling them something that God commanded. But Paul said, if you do this, you will not need Christ. You don't need Jesus. And why would he say that? What does Jesus do for His people? When we have faith, what specifically are we having faith in? Are we having faith that Jesus just died? Are we having faith that Jesus lived a good life? Are we having faith that Jesus was the Son of God? Faith implies what? It implies trust. That that there's something that we're trusting in. And specifically what we're trusting in, when we say we have faith in Jesus, is we're trusting that our righteousness... That we need to see God and to have a relationship with God comes from where? It comes from Jesus. It comes from Him. So if our righteousness comes from Jesus, can I do anything to improve upon that? Can I do anything to add to that? Do I need to do anything to add to the perfection and the righteousness that I get from Jesus? Because God says it's the righteous that will see Him. It's the righteous that will dwell with God for eternity. So we know that we need righteousness. But Paul's saying, here's the problem. You can either get that righteousness from Christ, or you can get it from the law. And he's saying, if you choose to accept circumcision, then you are saying, I don't need Christ. What I need is the law, and so I'm going to require people to be circumcised. And so that's why Paul used this strong language that if you do this, you don't need Jesus. Now, like I said earlier, we don't have a problem here of debating about circumcision, but what are some other things? Uh, we could talk about a lot of different examples, but, but I'll just use, use one for, for right now. The concept of tithing. Now, is tithing commanded in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. It is commanded in the Old Testament. But if you remember, if you were here a year or so ago, uh, I think it was a year and a half ago, whenever it was, uh, in September, I preached a sermon on giving. And I don't remember all the points there, but I do remember the first point was that tithing is not required by God. Now, what am I talking about with that? What, what does that mean? This, this is what I'm saying, because you could say tithing is similar to circumcision in this way. Because the idea is how we view it. So if you say, Corey, am I required to tithe? My answer would be, no, you're not required to tithe. Because your requirements for righteousness is fulfilled by what? By you doing things or by what Christ has done? It's fulfilled by what Christ has done. So if you want to say, okay, Corey, I think that tithing is required, then I will say to you what Paul has said, that's fine, you don't need Jesus. 
You're going to keep all the Old Testament law because Paul says, if you want to start keeping one, you've got to keep them all. So therefore, he says, Christ is no, of no advantage to you and to every man who accepts circumcision, so every man who accepts any requirement of the law, he is obligated to keep the whole law. So if you think you have the ability to keep the whole law, as Paul would say, more power to you. You don't need Jesus. But if you ask the question, well, shouldn't people be giving? Well, yeah. I think it's a natural uh, overflow of, of understanding of the gospel and understanding of the resources that we have and that God will uh, put a desire in us to give toward the ministries of His kingdom and the work of the local church. So yes, I think it's great. And I think it's a fruit of and evidences of, of a love for the gospel. But does it make you more righteous? No. Does it make God love you more? No. Does it improve your relationship with God? No. Does it improve your standing with God? No. Does it make you a better Christian? No. Is it a good fruit of showing that you do do love Christ? Yeah, I think so. And we could use so many different other examples. Are you required to come to church? No, you're not required to come to church. You don't gain righteousness. But should there be a desire to? Yes. This is the difference between, I guess, what we would say in, in the country, the, the all to do and the want to do. You know, you have all to do religion and you have want to do. All to do is man's religion. Want to do is the gospel. So the question is, how do we view Christianity? How do we view things like tithing? How do we view things like coming to church? How do we view things in regard to Christianity? Is it ought to do or want to do? If this is an ought to do, this will be the most boring hour of the week for you. I can promise you. Because you're all to doing it. How many of you like to do stuff you ought to do? You know, that's why we call them all to do's. Because you don't like to do them, but you do them because what? You ought to do them. There's an obligation. We don't enjoy it. But what about the things we want to do? We enjoy them, right? I enjoy watching my favorite teams in person or on TV. There's no obligation to do it, but you know what? When I know that they're going to be on TV, I either record the game or I set aside time. I tell Jasmine, hey, I'd like to watch the game here. And, and, and I do it. I enjoy it. I, it's fun because I want to do it. Is Christianity for you a religion of freedom or religion of slavery? Is it all to do or want to do? Is it obligation or opportunity? And my fear is that for a lot of us, these things like coming to church and doing ministry things and, and, and you know studying the Bible, all these things are, 
are more all do's than want to do's. That they're more slavery, items of slavery, than items of, of freedom. But as Paul said in verse 1, Christ has come what? To set us free. Freedom. So that when we sin, is our righteousness with God affected? No. It's not. Because our righteousness is not dependent upon what I did or did not do. It's dependent upon what Christ has already done. And so therefore, there is no guilt in our sin. And my fear is that Satan uses unbiblical guilt to burden many Christians. Should you grieve for your sin? Yes. Should you repent of your sin? Yes. But if you are a child of God and you are trusting in Christ for your righteousness, should you feel guilt for your sin? And the answer is no. Because if there's guilt, then what in the world was Jesus doing on a cross? My Bible says that Jesus paid for my guilt through His death. And so therefore, is God going to charge me again? Was Christ's death not sufficient for my sin? Was it not sufficient for your sin? Satan likes to tell us that it wasn't. As he whispers into our ear, as he shows us our guilt, which we must admit and confess to, But there's a difference between grieving over your sin and repenting of it and feeling guilty about it. Now, if you have never truly professed faith in Christ and you've never been born again and been given the new heart, then you need to feel guilty because your guilt remains upon you until faith in Christ happens. And so as we think about this for ourselves and for our congregation. It's important to ask ourselves if we view this as freedom. You say, well, Corey, I just don't, I don't feel free. I don't feel free from the, the curse of the law. I feel this is all to do. And it just wears me down, this all to do. I gotta do this, gotta do this, gotta do this for the church, gotta do this, gotta do this. I feel like I'm I'm trying to, to I just run myself to death trying to do all these things. There's no freedom. This is like uh, slavery. If that's you, then have you ever considered the possibility that what you've been trusting in is yourself and not Jesus? That you've been trusting in your ability to do certain things to earn God's favor? To do certain things to merit God's love. To do certain things to make yourself more approved by God. That's what we're all prone to do. And Paul is saying that the gospel, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, you screwed up, you sinned, you can't fix it. 
Jesus, is, Jesus fixes it for you. Jesus serves as your righteousness that you need to have access to God. He serves, serves as a just punishment and, and receiver of the payment of sin that you deserve. And He serves as the hope of the resurrection. So that Paul says in verse 5, he says that through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice he doesn't say that we eagerly work for the hope of righteousness. But he says we wait for it. So that when we have faith in Christ, we've been given a new heart and the Spirit is within us. So the Spirit testifies to us what is right and what is wrong. And confirms the revelation of God, the law of God in our hearts. We follow the work of the Spirit in our lives. And we do it with a hope that even though I battle and I struggle with sin every day, that I have hope that regardless of what failures I have today, my hope is that on the day of judgment, I will receive the full righteousness of God. And there's freedom in that. So that Satan can't condemn me. That when I said that yesterday, I gossiped about this person, was it wrong? Yes. I did something I shouldn't have done with my wife, or I did something I shouldn't have done with my kids, or I messed up as a pastor. My marriage has fallen apart. All these things that, that, that guilt, that, that Satan uses to bring guilt upon us. But for those in Christ, our hope is that our righteousness is not dependent upon those things. Our righteousness is dependent upon what? Or upon who? It's dependent upon Jesus Christ So when we answer the question, what is true freedom? True freedom is realizing that your righteousness is in Jesus. And it's the most liberating thing in the world. Because you realize that I don't have to work to please God. I don't have to to do things to win His approval. That I've got His approval through faith in Christ. That Christ won my approval on my behalf through His life. That was perfect. Freedom. No longer captive to the law. I don't circumcise because I have to. So I don't give because I have to. I give because I want to. That I'm not here this morning because I have to. Because it's my job. It is. But I like being here. Because I like being with the body of Christ. To see what God's Word has to say. To sing of the glories of His His grace and the truth of the Gospel. So imagine what a different place this would be on Sunday morning. If every one of us were here as a result of want to be and not ought to be. It would be a different place. You ever been to a, a game? I've never been to a game at Cameron Indoor, but some of you have. Lee or Morty, y'all here, you know... Anybody else been to a game there? Megan's been to a game there, right? So it's an exciting place, right? It looks exciting on TV. Why is it exciting? Are those however many thousand people there, are they all of these or wannabes? They're wannabes. They want to be there. When we experience freedom in the gospel, this becomes a want-to-be time. Because we realize that that yoke that we were under in the bondage of the law 
having to work and work and work, and all it did was condemn us and condemn us and condemn us and dig our hole deeper and deeper and deeper. And now that Christ has set us free, freedom. Imagine, you know, this is hard to even imagine, but imagine that you were a real slave. And that you had been a slave for 40, 50 years. And all of a sudden, you were set free. And someone came and said, you know what? You are free. No longer are you a slave. You can go anywhere you want to go. You can do anything you want to do. How happy you would be. How joyful you would be. Because the yoke and the bondage of slavery would be gone. How much more is the bondage of the law? One of the purposes of the law is to condemn us. It shows us our guilt. It does a great job of doing it. It shows us where we have transgressed the law of God. It does great at that. But it does a bad job of giving hope. The gospel gives hope. Because we realize that all those failures that we had and our inability to save ourselves is fulfilled and worked out in the work of Christ. Does Paul think this is a big deal? He does. As when you look at verses seven uh, through twelve, just to just to point out, as he he talks about you were running well, someone hindered you from obeying the truth. He's warning them in verse nine that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So a little bit of false teaching and false doctrine can ruin a whole congregation in regard to what the gospel is. So beware. And for those who want to misinterpret the gospel, he warns them too, saying that you will bear the penalty whoever you are. And then in verse 12, these strong words, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I mean, you think this is something that Paul felt strongly about? Yes, he felt strongly about. Those are strong words. Because he recognized what was at stake here was the root of the gospel, the core of the gospel. Either my standing with God is based upon what I do or don't do, or it's based upon what Christ has done for me. It has to be either or. Paul saying it cannot be both and. So are we going to be as a congregation, a congregation that's under the slavery or under the yoke and slavery of the law? Or are we going to be a congregation that lives in freedom? That recognizes that our righteousness is only possible through what Christ has done. We strive to abandon sin and we strive to flee from sin and we grieve at sin, but we are reminded by the call of the gospel that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God doesn't condemn you, then who am I to condemn you? And that truth is for those who are followers of Christ, who have been born again. So if you are a Christian this morning, I pray that you are renewed to the truth of the gospel. That you would flee those thoughts 
that say you need to work for God's approval. And you'll be reminded of the righteousness that we have in Christ. And that would be freedom for you. If you have lived a life of slavery up until this point, maybe you've been coming to church because you're an all-to kind of guy, or woman, or girl. And it's never been a want-to for you. My encouragement to you and exhortation is to simply ask the question, why has it never been a want-to? Could it be that you've been under the bondage of the law all your life? That you've been working to please God and never recognize that your labors are in vain outside of the work of Christ? If that's the case, I say what Jesus says. Repent and believe in the Gospel. All who have faith in Christ will be saved. And in that salvation there is freedom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.